Thank you, thank you, thank you. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We're going to read the, together there as we go through this great book of the Bible, Revelation, chapter 19. Uh, tonight is a baptism night. If uh, you want to follow in believer's baptism, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior and would like to follow in believer's baptism, this is for you. You can come tonight, 6 o'clock, in the Kids Life Center, which was our worship center back years ago, a special place in my heart for that uh, building. And um, uh, you're, you're uh, welcome to come and invite some family and friends. It's a little more intimate setting. You can, it'll just be a special night. Six o'clock's when it starts. You'll need to be there a little early if you're, I'll, I want to know that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Well, let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 19, and I'm going to read the first 10 verses as we go, really chapter 19 and 20 and 21, we've, um, and there's just some, a lot that happens in that time and some uh, really exciting events in this 19th chapter I love. So let's read. Uh, beginning with verse 1, the first 10 verses of Revelation chapter 19, as we talk about worship in heaven. The Bible says, After this I heard something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous, because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. The second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. A voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a, of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, These words of God are true. <clears throat> Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, Don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let's note what the Bible says about worship in heaven. Now, the book of Revelation is talking about what's going to happen. It's not what's already transpired. Sometimes we see books of the Bible that tell us about history, things that happened in the past, and we can learn from the history and learn from the mistakes of others, the victories of others. But the book of Revelation is talking about what will transpire. And we get a little glimpse, sort of like pulling back the veil and looking into the throne room of heaven and seeing a little of what happens there. And by that, God doesn't just tell us this so that we know information about what's going to happen, but also so that in this age, in this stage of your life, in this generation, we can worship the Lord. We can learn something about the worship of heaven that allows us to understand how God wants us to worship him in the here and now. So let's note four principles about worship in heaven that this passage teaches us. You can write that down on your uh, worship guide or the church app. Let's note these four things together. Number one, worship in heaven recognizes the Lord's nature. And in this book, in this chapter, in these verses, and really throughout the Bible, we see very often the, the Bible calling us to praise. Praise is thanking God for who he is or worshiping God for who he is. It's not just 
thanking God for what he's done, though we ought to do that. It's not just worshiping God for what he's done, though we worship him in response to what he's done. But praise is thanking God for who he is, not what he's done for us, not just the blessings he's provided, but worshiping God for who he is. Our uh, grandkids, we just love that they want to spend time with us. We love that. Now, we get them pretty much anything they want. If they, if they want snacks, we get them snacks. We just open up our wallets, and Vicki and I just give them everything they want, treats and trinkets and snacks, and we just get that. We like doing things for them, but we want them to want to be with us, not just for what they can get, but just because they love us. God in heaven gives you so many blessings, and we ought to be grateful for those things. But he wants you, and he loves, is this not incredible? God loves to spend time with you. God loves to be with you. And he loves for you to love to be with him. Not just for what he's done for you, though he has done so many things for you. But just because you love him for who he is. And you recognize something of who he is. Let's note some lessons we learn from this. Notice in these first verses we see the word hallelujah four times, in fact. The word hallelujah is not used in the New Testament except here in the book of Revelation in this particular chapter four different times. Hallelujah is used. It's used in the Old Testament in the book of Psalms. Many times we see that word hallelujah. And it's really a Hebrew word, halle, which is just the Hebrew word for uh, praise, and Yah, which is the beginning of the term for God, Yahweh. And it's just saying, hallelujah, just a way of saying praise God. It's just a kind of an exclamation of who God is and our recognition that we want to praise him and we want to express that praise. We're thanking him for who he is and we're worshiping him for who he is. And so we see that four times in this text. We're reminded to praise the Lord and in the book of uh, Psalms, that great Old Testament songbook for us, we see that over and over, the importance of praise, the value of just praising God, not just for what he's done, but also for who he is. And then let's go, let's go uh, back to verse 1. The Bible says, after this, John said, I heard something like the loud voice. Can I just tell you, sometimes our praise is loud. That is, there are times when we praise God in this as he speaks to us often in a still, small voice, there are times when we respond in a whisper or times when we respond to God in silence. But in this case in heaven, they're responding with a loud voice. Notice the volume is loud. And notice that the Bible says it's a vast multitude. While we can worship God individually, there is something about the uh, worshiping God with the multitude. And this is the vast multitude in heaven. Those who have known Christ as Savior through all the ages of humanity and that loud voice, vast multitude, I'm thankful for that. We are not alone. We don't worship. We're not the only ones. God allows us to be a part of this great multitude in heaven. And then here's what they were saying, this vast multitude with a loud voice. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. So three things the Bible says here belong to our God. Salvation and glory, and power. The word salvation, we sort of rebel against that because 
um, we, we often, in our human nature, we say, I don't, really, like, I don't really need to be saved. Maybe God could help me a little bit. Maybe I could be sort of reformed a little bit. You know, maybe he could provide some assistance. But the Bible says we need to be saved, that we are lost in our trespasses and sins, that we're separated from God, that we're floundering whether we realize that or not. And we need to be saved. And salvation, the Bible says, belongs to our God. He is the one who provides it. And I want you to see that because you won't be able to save yourself. You can't sort of improve your way to perfection or somehow by your good works reach God. We're all sinners and separated from God. And there's no hope except that the Lord gives salvation. And it comes from him. It belongs to him. And glory and power belong to him. That is who he is. That's a part of his very nature. And then let's skip down to verse 10, the end of this chapter. Notice John, who's been watching a little of the worship in heaven, he's hearing the description a little of what's going on from the angel, and he bows down to worship the angel. And the angel says, don't do that, verse 10. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, he says, worship God. And the angel rightly understands that only the Lord is worthy of our worship. So whatever else you worship, whatever else you worship is unworthy of your worship. Many people worship possessions and things become the idol of their life. Or they worship power or position. Maybe this is you. And you begin to worship what you can attain or worship pleasure. And I'll just tell you, this is the biggest idol. You know, we, we don't see as much in America, and we see other countries still, other places of the world still do this. Some We don't see a lot of like a, a, an image that's been formed and we worship that image. It happened a lot in the Old Testament, parts of our world today, but not so much in America where you see an image formed and we bow down to worship that image. But I will suggest that there is an idol that we worship very commonly. Maybe it's the most common idol in America today. And you'll know, you'll know this. You'll know this idol because it's the person that you see in the mirror every morning. And we have a tendency, while maybe we don't make a statue of ourselves, though perhaps that's crossed your mind a time or two, <laughs> but you find yourself worshiping yourself. What do I like? What do I want? What do I get? What do I have? What's in it for me? Me, me, me. And we find ourselves just worshiping ourselves. But listen, whatever it is that you worship besides the Lord is unworthy of your worship. Whatever it is, yourself at the top of that list, unworthy of our worship. And so the Bible is telling us worship in heaven is going to recognize the, the nature of the Lord and see God for who he is. And it's part of why the Bible gives us this great book of the Bible so that we can see more of who God is and worship him, the only one worthy of our worship. There's a second principle to note. Worship in heaven sees the Lord's righteousness. So let's go to, back to the text and back to verse 2. Salvation, glory, and honor belong to our God because his judgments, the Bible says, his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. Speaking of what we talked about last week, the chapter before when uh, we saw Babylon, that... that uh, equivalent of immorality that has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen, chapter 18 said. And it's the judgment that's come upon 
immorality and sin. Can I just note a couple of things here? I want to note with you that God is a righteous judge. He's a righteous judge. And he will judge righteously the immorality of the age. It ought to sober us up a little bit too because he is a righteous judge. Once in a while you hear about some case where someone gets convicted of some crime and then they find out later that the person was innocent. Well, God's a righteous judge and he knows all the facts, the good, the bad, and the ugly of your life. And he's a righteous judge that puts a little fear in your heart if you're thinking soberly because God knows the truth about you, the part that no one else knows and no one else can see. And God knows that. And the Bible says he's going to judge immorality. Um, verse, in verse 3, the Bible says the second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. That is the judgment of Babylon. By the way, um, I, the last few weeks we've been going through this text and there's been a lot, of, a lot of talk in those chapters about judgment. And so many of you have said, Pastor, just more sermons on judgment. We want more sermons on judgment. And I tell you, the Bible does, doesn't it, talk about judgment a good bit. But we see God as the righteous judge and that you can't escape from the chapters that we've seen the last few weeks. You can't escape this truth that God judges sin, that he takes sin seriously, that it's not just something he ignores. He's a righteous judge and he's a God who will give grace and mercy and forgiveness. For this, I'm grateful. In fact, you won't really be thankful very much unless you realize how wrong sin is. But I want, you to, I want to call your attention to a second thing. I said God's a righteous judge, but note that God will one day set all things right. The Bible says in, um, in verse 4, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, remember, you may remember we saw them all the way back in the early chapters of the book of Revelation. The 24 elders, people, the four living creatures, these angels that are worshiping God, they're saying amen, hallelujah, two Hebrew words, amen, so be it. We are, we're in agreement, hallelujah, praise God. And all of that comes out of verse 2. Notice what the Bible says at the, in the middle of verse 2. God has, he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. Speaking of the immorality of Babylon the Great. He's avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. He's saying God will one day set all things right. So let me ask you, does it, does it feel like all things are set right right now? Does it feel to you like sometimes the bad guys win? I mean, doesn't it feel to you like... Sometimes people who are the farthest from God, the most disobedient to what God says, are succeeding. And doesn't it seem to you that, that you, know, you know people who love the Lord, who are serious about faith, who have sacrificed for the cause of Christ even, and they're facing difficulties and struggles. Maybe you thought along the way, you know, if I just follow God, if I'll, just, I'll start going to church, I'll... Maybe I'll get in a life group. I'll start using my time and talent and treasure for the glory of the Lord. And, and you said, and then my life will be, everything will be smooth and easy and good. And then you found out that you still had problems and there were still difficulties and there were still struggles. And it seems like the bad guys win. I mean, they run from God, ignore God, argue against God go their own way, and yet it seems like they're successful. They're doing fine in their business. You know, their health's in good shape. And you say, how can this be? And notice what the Bible says here. He has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. So it seemed like in Babylon, man, Babylon, 
is winning. All is working fine. These poor guys who trust Christ as Savior in these days of tribulation now become martyrs for their faith. The bad guys seem to win. And then the Bible is telling us there's coming a day when God will set all things right. When he will set all things right. He will make right all that is wrong. Make every path straight. I heard this story long ago, and it just, I don't, I don't know, some stories just stick with you. There's a story of this guy who's a missionary long ago. He was a missionary in Africa. And he'd spent a lifetime there serving as a missionary. And he'd gotten older. His health was bad. He had to come back to the United States. This is the days before he could fly. And he just got on a ship to come back from Africa, back to the United States. And it happened to be that on that same vessel with this missionary was a politician, famous politician, who'd been in Africa on a safari. And he came back, the politician came back. When they arrived at New York, there was a band playing for the arrival of this dignitary and people cheering, speeches made on behalf of some guy who'd gone to Africa to shoot some animals. And there was a missionary who came back home and uh, nobody greeted him, nobody, no speeches, no bands playing. He went off by himself to a little apartment somewhere and he just felt... He just kind of had a little pity party in his life. And he said, God, why is, I don't understand this, God. Here is a politician who travels over to Africa to shoot some animals. Everybody, oh, great, you know, wonderful. So glad to have you back. And I spend a lifetime in Africa sharing the good news of the gospel. No one greeting me when I come home. And, And this missionary said, the still small voice of the Lord reminded him of this truth. You're not home yet. You're not home yet. And there'll come a day when God will set all things right. And it seems like we look at the world now and we say Babylon is winning. I mean, the, the bad guys are successful. The way of the world seems to be in a, ascendance in our culture. But there'll come a day when God will set all things right. And I'm reminded of that. Worship in heaven understands that. That God is a righteous judge and we'll see the Lord's righteousness and that he will, this righteous judge, judge one day set all things right. There's a third principle I'd like you to know. Worship in heaven obeys the Lord's call. It obeys the Lord's call. In verse heaven, we see God's call to worship. Uh, a voice from the throne. This is, the Lord is on the throne. And here's, here's, the, here's what we hear. Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Praise our God. That's the command. That's the call. Praise God. All his servants, all who name the name of Christ. It is unnatural to know Christ as Savior and not be worshiping him. Can I just tell you that? It's unnatural. Not not thinking to praise the Lord, not spending time with the Lord. That's an unnatural response to those of us who know Christ as Savior. It says all his servants and the ones who fear him, the, the ones who fear him, this is that understanding that God is a righteous judge and that we are sinners and we're not worthy. And yet God invites us into his presence, loves for us to spend time with him. And the Bible says both small and great, those who are famous and powerful, those who have little of the world's wealth or little of the world's clout. And the Lord is saying, God calls us to worship. God calls you to worship. Can I just tell you, if you know him as Savior, he's calling you to worship. And then notice that many will respond. Verse 6 says, I heard something, I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude. 
So this is this is this multitude. We're going to, we're going to see in verses six and seven what they do. Hallelujah, they're saying hallelujah, blessed uh, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Verse seven, let us be glad, rejoice, give Him glory. That's what they're saying, and it sounds like verse six says, like the voice of a vast multitude, a sort of picture because it's this time of the year, a, a giant football game, a stadium, and some of the stadiums for college football games will have 100,000 fans. So thousands and thousands. You can see this kind of picture, this vast, this vast multitude. But they're not, they're not just there uh, excited about a team. Now listen, I, and I love sports and football, but there is something far bigger than that, something far greater. And so while there could be 100,000 at a stadium witnessing a game or the loud murmur, the loud voices that would come from that. There's something far greater. And in heaven, you'll see that more fully when the vast multitude is praising God. Some, praising God who's worthy of praise about something even greater than anything this world knows. So the Bible says it's like a vast multitude. It's like cascading waters, the Bible says. It's like the sound of cascading waters. If you've, uh, maybe you've been hiking somewhere where there's a waterfall. And you're walking along, you can't even see the waterfall, but you hear it. That cascading waterfall makes such a roar. And the Bible is saying that's how the sound was of the, of the many, the vast multitude in heaven. They're, it's like you hear this mighty water, like the rumbling, verse 6 says, of loud thunder. It's been a really a, kind of a dry uh, summer these last many weeks now. And, but there's something about us. Uh, thunderstorm in the Midwest, in the, especially in the summer. Vicky and I will sometimes go out on the porch. We just like to flirt with death sometimes when there's a thunderstorm nearby, and we'll hear that thunder. I mean, you, can, you can hear from so far away, so far away, just rolling. And the Bible says that, that's what it was like in heaven, because many, many have joined. Now listen, can you worship God individually? Of course. But we need each other. There's a power to corporate worship. God made us to be together. There's a value in seeing this. Some of you feel very alone in your faith. Maybe you're the only serious Christian in your family. Or maybe at your job there aren't any others who are serious about faith. You feel very alone. But there's something about recognizing that there's still a vast multitude. Elijah one time said, Lord, I'm the only one left. I'm all you've got left. And the Lord said, there's still 7,000 who have not bowed their knee to Baal. He was saying, you're not alone. You feel alone. But you're not alone. It's one of the reasons God formed the church. Because we need this vast multitude. We need this cascading water. We need this rumbling of loud thunder. And we need together to call on the name of the Lord and worship him. Hallelujah. Amen. We need that as believers. There's a fourth principle I want you to note about worship in heaven. Worship in heaven responds to the Lord's work. It responds to the Lord's work. And in verse 7 and following, we're going to see um, a wedding and a bride, and a marriage feast. Wow, what an odd thing to see in heaven. But it's speaking here about the bride of Christ. Do you know who the bride of Christ is? Do you know who that is? The bride of Christ is the church. And you say, the church? You mean the very thing that is so denigrated in our society now? Yeah. You mean the church that is mocked in our world? Yeah, yeah. Bride of Christ. You mean the thing that even many who name the name of Christ devalue, ignore, 
or show disdain for. Yes, the church described as the bride of Christ. And yet we live in a society that talks so poorly of the church. Many who name the name of Christ in this generation in particular show great disdain for the church. The church as a whole, the local expression of the church. And yet I, I ask you, who, who formed the church? Is that, was it made by man? Well, no. God formed the church. And he did it for a reason. And it's described as the bride of Christ. Now if you go to a wedding... And there's that bride standing at the front. Man, it's just a beautiful picture, isn't it? But wouldn't it sound kind of odd to you if, if there was a, the bride there waiting for the groom and, and you just heard people around you saying, you know what, that bride is really, she's really ugly. She's just an ugly, man, really ugly girl. Look at her, she's just so ugly. What if they just spent all their time just denigrating the bride, how ugly she was, how terrible she was? Wouldn't that be an odd thing? And yet that has become so acceptable in modern Christian circles to just talk about. Now listen, can, I am aware of the weakness of the church. I'm aware, I'm aware of the weakness of this church. I've been here a long time now. You know what the problem is? It's us. That's the problem, right? It's people like us, you and me. We're imperfect people. But when the Lord Jesus describes the church as the bride of Christ... I wonder if he ever gets tired of hearing people just talk about how ugly the church is. That bride is so ugly. I get it. We need to recognize the imperfections of people and we need to avoid the blatant hypocrisy that so many have accepted in church life. But the Lord knew that churches would be made up of people when he formed the church and he did it anyway. And he values deeply the local church. The very thing that has been devalued by the Christian culture of this generation, God values deeply. And so he talks here about a wedding and a bride and a marriage feast. Let's note three things about the bride. Number one, note the bride prepares. The Bible says in verse 7, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory. Boy, there's some excitement about worship in heaven I mean, there's some enthusiasm about it. There ought to be in our worship here. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She's prepared herself. There's a sense in which we're preparing ourselves right now for our future and right now for the return of the Lord Jesus and right now for heaven itself. And we are to be prepared. Those of you who are here have never trusted Christ as Savior, can I just tell you, God has brought you to this place so that you'd hear this gospel message again, that you need to be saved, that you need to be born again, and that Christ can save you, and that God wants you to be prepared for that day when you will stand before him, and that day is close. Whether it's to meet him in the air or through the veil, it's close. It's but a moment until we stand before him. In the Jesus movement in the 1960s and the 1970s, there was a great emphasis on the return of the Lord and on kind of end times in general, and um, there was a song that was sung. When we would gather around, when I was young, we would gather around a campfire. We would sing, you know, sing some songs sometimes. Kumbaya was one of those great songs, Kumbaya. Just really, really, uh, just a, wonder, really a wonderful song, Kumbaya. And sometimes we would sing, if you're around the campfire in the early 70s, you wouldn't sing. Kumbaya wasn't the only song, great as it was, that you would sing. But you would also sometimes sing, 
a song by Larry Norman, who was a kind of a, a hippie guy who uh, got right with God. And he's, he sang a song, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. And it talked about the end times. Some of you, a few of you can remember that song. You've heard it since then, perhaps. I wish we'd all been ready. And he's talking about, I wish the Lord has returned and, and we weren't ready, he was saying, and how sad that would be. And I'm just telling you, I'm, the Bible tells you what God is going to do so that you will be prepared for that day. And one day you will stand before the Lord to give account of your life. And God tells you that truth because he wants you to be prepared. And we're preparing ourselves now. So if there's anything in your life that God, you know God wants you to change, I want you, I want you to say yes to him. Maybe there's something you know he wants to add, you to add to your life, to do, something he wants you to remove from your life. Because God is calling you to prepare. There's a second thing I want you to note about the bride. The bride responds in verse 8. The Bible says about the bride, she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Now, I believe God talking here to us is talking about uh, this fine linen, the righteous acts of the saints in, in two senses. One is, it is God's righteousness that's given to us in salvation. That is, we don't go to heaven because we were righteous in our own merit, but by trusting Christ and what he did for us on the cross of Calvary, our sins are paid, and we can be forgiven. And the Bible says we can be declared righteous or declared holy, as though we had never sinned. Now, we all have. But Christ paid the penalty on the cross. And if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ, Christ will save us. And his righteousness becomes ours. Just as our sin was taken by him upon the cross, he became our sin for us on the cross. His righteousness is given to us in salvation so that we can be declared righteous before God, holy and pure. But the Bible is saying here, the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And I remind you that though we're not saved by good works, we are saved for good works. We are saved for good works. And God calls us to righteous acts. And so I suspect there's some things the Holy Spirit would bring to your mind. If you say, God, I want, I want, to stand before you prepared and I want to stand before you responding to what you've done for me. So what is it that you want from me? How do you want me to serve? Did you know God has given you, if, if you're a believer, gifts and talents and abilities and he wants you to serve? He wants you to be a witness. Did you know God, if you know him as Savior, has given you a testimony, he wants you to be a witness for him. God wants you to use your time and your treasure and your talents for his glory. And so would you say, God, I want to respond to what you've done for me. Your love for me leads me to want to respond with my love for you. And I want to serve you. I want to, I want to be involved in what the Bible calls here righteous acts of the saints to do the things that you made for me to do, knowing I'm, I'm going to stand before you one day. I want to live for you this day. So God, whatever you want, Will you want me to serve? Man, maybe God wants you to, instead of just seeing the Christian life as what you can get, maybe you'd say, God, I want to give. I don't want to just be served. I want to serve. Lord, would you open up opportunities? Maybe there's something I've never thought about. I've never volunteered my time. I've never thought about how you have gifted me or the talents that you may have for me. God, I want to use those for your glory. The bride prepares and the bride responds. And then notice the bride feasts. Verse 9 says, then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. 
He said to me, these words of God are true. So God is going to prepare. He's preparing a place for us now, the Bible says, and he's got a feast for us, and it'll be a feast that will satisfy. Nothing in this world quite satisfies. Have you noticed that? It's never quite enough. You always need a little more, but there's coming a day when the Lord will provide a feast for his church, for those who know him as Savior. That will fully satisfy. By the way, in chapter 19, there are two feasts that are mentioned, and we'll see the second in uh, two weeks. We'll look at the second one, and that's not You're not going to like that feast so much. That's not the one that you really want to participate in. But this feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb, the Lord is saying, okay, listen, I've got everything, everything that you need, everything that you want, everything that your soul desires, all the things the world said, hey, if you could just get this, you keep finding it doesn't quite satisfy. It's never quite enough. But I've got exactly what your soul's been looking for. And I want to invite you to the wedding feast of the Lamb. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? And as we pray, maybe you're here and you've never, you're not sure you've ever really been saved. You've known about God maybe, or maybe you've tried to be good enough. But the Bible reminds us, Jesus said, you must be born again. That's a new, that's a transaction that happens. Would you, right where you are today, just acknowledge that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. God, I am lost without you. But you died on that cross for me, I believe that. You rose from the grave for me, I believe that. And so I want to give my life to you. And if you mean that, Christ will save you. Christian, I wonder if you wouldn't say today, God, I want, to, I, want to, I want to live my life now, knowing what's coming one day. Not too far away. I'll stand before you, either through the air or through the veil. I'm going to stand before you in a, the a blink of an eye. And I want to live my life here, knowing what's going to happen there. I want the worship of heaven one day to be the attitude of my heart, my spirit, this day. And Father, I want to thank you for this great passage of Scripture where we sort of pull back the veil and see a little bit of what's going to happen one day in heaven, where we see a little of what worship is like so that in this day we can worship you in spirit and in truth. So use this in our lives. Draw us to yourself. Draw people to salvation, I pray. Draw Christians to a deeper walk with you. And we'll give you the praise and the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.